Hi. Hello. It's Liba. And Leslie. And this is our second episode. Welcome. We're going to be interviewing David Fierro, who you might have seen on The Nick or on Red Oaks um, or in Birdman, but he's a very good personal friend of ours. Uh, we hope that you'll um, enjoy our, our topic that we were thinking about this week, which was jealousy. Exactly. Um, and if you don't feel caught up, you can always listen to our first podcast, but really these all stand alone. It's not like a series with a finale or anything. No, not at all. <laughs> I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. So we have a guest with us today on our second podcast. First guest on our podcast. And our guest is David Fierro. Uh, and I mean, David is a personal friend of mine and has also been a colleague of Leslie's. Um, and also a colleague of mine, honestly, because we went to drama school together. We overlapped by a year. Oh, um, I didn't know that. And we thought it would be really fun. I like fun. when you call it drama school. Like, we went to drama school. We went right. to graduate school. <laughs> Oh, that's a very weird story. I uh, yeah, I actually, yeah. so um, what happened was, was that um, when I was 18, I uh, went to this school called DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, my very good friend went there. And um, I was like, I wanted, I basically went and I had, was in love with this woman and I was engaged to this woman and I was so head over heels for her, but I got into school so I had to go to school. And what basically happened was that her mother decided that once I was out of the picture, she would take her daughter and put her in one of those reprogramming schools. It was very popular back in the 90s. Hold on. So what's, what's a, a reprogramming school? So what a reprogramming school is this? It's basically, you've, it's, especially if you're rich, what you can do is, oh, I don't like the fact that my kid smokes pot. Or I don't like the fact that my kid is like having sex. Mm -hmm. So if you're 16, your parents have legal right to you. So what they do is they send you off to a school in like the middle of nowhere, like in Oregon or in Washington, and they basically are reprogramming you to be able to go back into society and not do those things. The idea is that it's before you're, eight, you're 18, but usually the reprogramming has worked. I'm using, by the way, uh, air, quotes. Air, air, quotes, air quotes. Big air quotes. Has worked so that when you get, so like when you turn 18, you will stay in the program and go through the whole program to like mm. go through the changes. And I'm sure it worked for some people. Don't get me wrong, but there were a lot. So, having said that, having yes. given that picture of this, mm. so I go off to undergrad uh, at DePaul University. Um, and I went, I, I also, by the way, I do this thing where I just make big steps without thinking a lot about where I'm going. Like, I think, 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 and then I make a big step that has no, like, plan. There's no, like, yes. good idea behind it. It's just, this is what I'm doing. Um, so I went to DePaul, and first off, they take, like, I think when I went, they took, like, 400 undergrad in their first year. Small, it was It was right? pretty crazy. Oh, no, for acting. Oh, so that's oh. pretty big. Just for acting. It was rather large, okay, but what so they do is, is it's a cut school. So right. they cut down to like 200 in your second year, and then they cut down to like 50 in your third year, and then you end up graduating with like 14 people. But what the thing was, was that I got there, I knew it was a cut school, I had all this stuff at home, I was there for... Where's home? Where's uh, home? Uh, so I lived in San Francisco, San Francisco oh, okay. Bay Area, and I, w I went up to Chicago to go to school. Mm -hmm. And I was there for about three to four months, and in that time, my ex-girlfriend had like, 
an ex-fiancé, had escaped from the school at one point and was like calling from San Francisco to try and get me back. Was this, I'm I'm trying to get a picture of this. She was under 18. Yeah. But you you were engaged. Or was it like, was it formally engaged or was it it like we're going to get married? No, no, I asked. I I did ask. It was official. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was as official as anything can be when you're these ages. Like, you know, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, like, you were young, but it was very true. Yeah, it was true. So it was my like first love. Romeo mm-hmm. and Juliet with reprogramming school. Yeah, yeah Romeo and Juliet. And, and like grad it's school. And like yeah. Pericles. You know, yeah. that's what I saw. I saw Pericles and I was at DePaul. But anyway, so I um, I spent four months there and I realized that I had made the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. And I also, this was during that's a period of time. That's actually, I think, a pretty impressive Impressively uh, impressive short of period time. of time to yeah. figure out you're in the wrong place. But no, I I also it was during this period of time when like Quentin Tarantino had just first came onto this like Pulp Fiction had just come out like mm. Reservoir Dogs had come out and like you know everyone it was like this period where everyone was like there's this huge focus on film mm-hmm. um, and I decided that I was going to leave school and come home and get my ex girlfriend back and become a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So I was there for four months, and I actually, you know, it's very funny, we actually made a film about the making of this film, uh-huh. uh, because I wrote and directed three films when I was, like, between the age of, like, 18 to, like, 24, I wrote and directed three films, uh, and so, I stopped, because it's real expensive. Mm-hmm. When you came home after leaving DePaul, mm-hmm. um, you did you ever go back to college, or did no. you start becoming a filmmaker just on your own? And I did all my own, you yeah. You were just flying solo, trying to... Basically, like, get enough funds and generate your scripts, yeah? I worked at Whole Foods. Actually, I, I think I worked at this other, I worked at this other, like, place called Ultra Luca for years. And then I worked at this place called Diller's Deli, and then I worked for Whole Foods. And do, using the money from working there, basically, for the first film, the first film was uh, this movie called Evening at Nouveau. And all of that money came from working at Ultra Luca and I just worked my ass off and I worked mm-hmm. tirelessly and we luckily we had this benefit with this really weird my family is related to the Grateful Dead mm-hmm. so we had this very weird and not because I'm in from Marin County mm-hmm. the weekend that Jerry Garcia died we, mm-hmm. um, we were actually able to string together a bunch of people from my dad's band which is kind of like a spinoff of the Grateful Dead and other mm-hmm. members of the Grateful Dead and they came down to this benefit for our movie we ended up making lots of money that evening like, and we actually were able to pay for a lot of things that we ended up paying for for the movie mm. because Jerry Garcia died thank you Jerry Garcia for the kindness um, <laughs> but not for the death of <laughs> a lot course. of people love Jerry Garcia that is I, I, I just I have to say I mean I've known you for a long time and I had no idea that you never went to college yeah no what happened to me in my 30s and like in my I'd say between 24 to 34 mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. was that I kind of gave up mm-hmm. on doing acting and I kind of walked away because filmmaking kind of took a lot out of me mm-hmm. and um, because also you do this thing called you write orf I wrote orphans and what I call orphans is I write things that I know will never be seen mm-hmm. and I wrote like so many orphans that I was like I have like poured my heart and my soul and my emotional life into this thing that I'm just going to go put on like a shelf and mm-hmm. it's never going to be made. And I, I, I liken it to like a painter. Mm-hmm. I feel a painter paints a picture to see a reflection and to show the world their vision. Right. 
and I've heard of painters that like paint stuff and they just hide it. My mom is like this. My mom paints these things and then she puts it away and nobody looks at it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the whole purpose of art is for people to see it and to see something of themselves in the work that they see reflected. So when you say that you were making orphans, does that mean that you were making art that you felt never found its parents because it was never seen? Or did you feel like you were doing what your mom was doing, which was painting and putting it away because you just couldn't take it off the shelf? I feel it's a, a combination of both because yeah. I think that it's, I mean, I would have been the parent of that, of those mm -hmm. scripts, but it's, but especially at the time, it's so expensive to make it's a film. a huge undertaking, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you end up, I mean, because I, we'd done it like three times mm -hmm. and we knew, and I, my, my producer, who was like the nicest guy in the universe um, and really stood behind the three films, the, the two films that he made, uh, that he produced, and the film that I made, um... I couldn't ask him to do that again. Like, I couldn't, nice. like, like, it was like a money pit that you just can't keep throwing money in. Uh, so once we got around, so once we got around to doing those, I just kind of went away and I kind of, like, So closed. now, that's my, that's my next question for you. Because you are, like, I mean, no actor thinks that they're super successful at any point because we're just born psychologically trying to, you know do more and more. No, I mean, no one thinks that they're done ever. Everyone's always worried about the next gig and the next show and the next that. But you're doing, I would, I feel like you're doing quite well right now. Mm -hmm. And I find, I find it really fascinating to hear that you quit. Like you a hundred percent quit. It sounds like you had that dark night of the soul, whatever people call it, and just said, I can't do this anymore. Like, how did that happen? How did you make that decision? And then how did you decide to come back? And do you think you're Better. Like, did you do you think that your approach to acting in the business improved because you quit and came? What happened with me is that I made a choice to just live a normal life. Mm -hmm. I I um I was happy working in these delis. Mm -hmm. I was happy. I felt like I'd followed my dream to its fruition. And I felt like I'd failed. And I had this weird thing where I met this girl, another girl. So I basically um. I retreated, um, I became a bit of a drunk, like mm -hmm. I met this girl who was, who had issues. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of issues and she had a lot of darkness of her soul um, and I was like, I'm going to save this girl mm -hmm. and I went down this really dark rabbit hole of trying to save this girl um, and in the end all be all, what I realized was that I was destroying myself. Mm -hmm. It was very weird because like for this girl I lost like so much weight. Like, I'm, by the way, you guys won't see me. You'll see a picture of me. But I'm not a small man. And I I got to be a very small man. Like, I got down, to, like, and it was ridiculous. And I got to, like, I got down really skinny and... Hold on. Pause. That is fascinating to me. So well, what's, yeah. especially with, with all the women's issues that, quote, women's quote. issues, unquote, that we talk about... Was she expecting you to do that? Or did you feel like that pressure was like a relationship pressure? Like why? Or, it I wasn't a relation. It was like basically it's like when you're trying to save someone, you want to show like such a horrible You want to teach by example? But you want, no, you want to like, you want to become beautiful so that people will see the beauty in you. Even though there's already beauty in you, but you believe that the world works in a certain way where you have to like, you then have to conform to the standards of what beauty is. Because I saw the people who she was actually involved with, and they did not look like a big fat deli guy. They looked like, you know, skinny, loser deli guys. But, right. so I was like, <laughs> I will be like, you know, 
trim and handsome, and I was also I, I was also a failure. So I felt like I was like, oh, well, I'm gonna become something else, and I did. I was very successful in that, and then. Do you think there's any correlation between like uh, alterations in our own image when we're not? making our own images like making any kind of art I mean is that do you think there's any correlation or am I reaching here? explain I don't get the question so like I I really love how you said earlier um that your your films right you would hope are a reflection of your vision of the world mm -hmm. right and you put all of your emotional spiritual energy into those orphans right mm -hmm. so when then you stopped, right? And you met this woman. Oh, and then so she, you started then they working become, on like, her. The, she becomes the, the film. The film. Yeah. And, oh, and, yeah. and even your own body. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's, it's not real. Because, by the way, just so you know, the things I'm describing is like me, like, I'm going to save you. That's not realistic. Mm -hmm. That's not how people get things to work out right. in their lives. Mm -hmm. Some people do. But that's not really how that story usually ends. But it's just a sublimation of energy that you should be putting into your art, your work, whatever it exactly. is. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the funny thing is, is that in the first part, when it was healthy, it was great because I mm -hmm. did actually lose like a ton of weight. But then once, like, once, you know, chemic, once, once basically we both became kind of entangled, not romantically entangled, but like a friendship and kind of, of like all that weird shit entangled. That and I became entangled in her energy, and I became a bit of a drunk, and I went down a dark path. And that is so ironic because then I started putting on a lot of weight and like doing undoing all the work that had been done. So I basically fully destroyed what the whole thing is about. And also, I kind of like as we both went on this dark path, we both kind of changed as human beings. Yeah. And I went I went as far with her as I could. And then I realized that I didn't, this wasn't me. This isn't what I wanted in my life. Mm -hmm. And I had to make a change. And so I walked away from that. Good. Was and, difficult? Oh, yeah, it was totally difficult. Yeah. But it was the most important thing I could do because mm -hmm. in the end, I'll be all, the thing that brought me back was the love I have for myself. Right. The thing that took me down that path was the love I had for others or the, you know, the believed love I had for others. Anyway, so a friend of mine said, why don't you start acting again? You know, as I was coming out of this and I said, oh, I should. So I went to this like playwriting class and I started kind of like writing plays, like I'm like mm -hmm. writing just like little plays. Mm -hmm. And um, it was trying to kind of spark me back in. And then I ended up doing this thing called the Mountain Play. Now in the Bay Area, we have this thing called the Mountain Play. What the Mountain Play is, it's a play that's done on the side of this mountain called Mount Tamalpais. <laughs> and it's a show, it's like they do six, per, they do six performances, uh -huh. and it's about 4,000 people a show. Cool. And there's huge shows, and we did like Fiddler on the Roof, and like yes. <laughs> Bye Bye Birdie, <laughs> I and love those. This is Cabaret. Oh, yes. We didn't do Cabaret. Oh. And we, didn't, we certainly didn't do Debbie Does Dallas. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's like big family musicals. Yeah. We're like, everybody can come. And we're like, Dad's drunk. No, and like Mom, a, like, she's like, like trying to help the kids. And there's a puppeteer. And it's like a big fun day. And it's like always great. And the music is always great. And the performances are always great. It's super fun. It's like a community thing. So mm -hmm. I did that for a couple years. Like once a year. And be like, once a year I did something special that's mm -hmm. like related back. And then... Kind of started coming back into my blood. Wait, hold on. Hold I on. have another burning question. 
Mine is short. We can't skip over. So, like, were you Tevye? Thank you. The room? No, I was not Tevye. <laughs> I was not Tevye. I was model. Oh, uh, you'd be a great Wait, was I model? Did you sing Miracle of Miracles? No, I did not sing that Miracle of Miracles. Then you were not then model, model, my friend. Uh, no, I was... Laser No, I was Avram. 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 Yes, 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 yes. Yes, the one who brings the news. Yes, who yes. has the remember the yeah, 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 yes, I was that guy. I That's was that guy. Song yeah, 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 yeah. That song, which always gets cut, I did that song. Ah, uh, it's I such think a good it, song. It shouldn't get song. cut. So, you were doing these mountain plays. Yes. And mm-hmm. then did you apply to Columbia for an MFA program? Is that how that went down? No, I, what happened first did you was work that... first there? Well, ACT in San Francisco, oh, right, right. they have this thing called mm-hmm. the Summer Training Program. Mm-hmm. And so once I'd done that for a couple of years, I said, this is getting serious. I need to like invest in it. I need to actually like, I need to invest in this. I need to see what, what it is. So I went and did the summer training program. And it was great because it's basically, it's, I call it like a, a appetizer platter of what an MFA is. Uh-huh. So you get to see what an MFA is. And, you, and then ACT has this thing where like all the schools come and audition there over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And That's so you just like, and I got, and the first, I think there was one year that I actually applied to a couple of them beforehand, but then like one year I just like realized like they took walk-ins. So like I basically was like, oh, hey NYU, and they're like, go fuck yourself. I'm like, all right, cool. Hey fucking you. And I go, like, oh, go fuck yourself. Oh, hey Yale, what's up? Fuck off. All right, great. Thank you so much, Yale. I'll, I'll take my pride <laughs> with me on the way out. Hey ART, go fuck yourself. And so that happened for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And I went to Shakes and Co., which is, mm-hmm. um, and I did the the winter intensive there. I I did a I did a seminar, like a weekend seminar with Dennis, and it was my first kind of touching base with taking the text and taking yourself and bringing them together, mm-hmm. in a way that like brings this dead language to life. And I think that's it gets lost so much. It gets lost so much where it's like I'm doing this big bombastic thing, right. but it's about you and your connection. And your connection to the text is what's going to bring people into the text. Right. Shakes and Co. Shakes, Shakes and, Co. and Co. So Shakes and Co. Uh, I did the month long with them, and I really felt like I had made some new connections and made some new personal connections. And then I came back, and this time when I did the shotgun in the room, where I just basically went, "Oh hi, do you want me? Oh hi, do you want me? Oh hi, do you want me?" Um, I was on my way out, and someone said. Oh, hey, did you know that Kristen Linklater's downstairs? And it's like, what? And they're like, yeah, Kristen Linklater's downstairs. Like, you don't understand. I read that fucking book. I fucking went to Shakespeare and Company. I fucking, I'm, I'm in the zone. And I'm like, well, she's leaving soon. So I, like, was very lucky. And I think I got to sneak in to the last group that they saw. And, um, and, then, and then, you know, and they really liked me. And I got called back to New York. And I came out to New York. Uh, and I did the, the weekend. And at right. the end of the weekend... Um, I ended up on the waiting list. Fascinating. And uh, and also on the same weekend, the weekend before... No, actually, it was the next weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got back from Shakes & Co., a big event happened in my life, which is that my father um, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and it began this kind of... And it was very fast. It took him out very fast. It took him out in like four months. And so from the beginning of the cancer, which was... When I got back from Shakespeare, and I, by the way, I went to Shakespeare and became totally open and totally this, mm-hmm. and then I literally came back to the worst possible news, yeah. which is my father had terminal cancer, and that like, so basically the first weekend, one weekend I went to New York for the callback for Columbia, 
And I have a very beautiful conversation with my father where I kind of closed it. We closed, we closed business. We, 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 mm. we talked for several hours. I didn't know it was the final time I was going to talk to him. Mm. He must have known that it was the final time we were going to really talk. Wow. We kind of closed. We it was really beautiful. And then, and he really wanted me to get into Columbia, and I really wanted to go to Columbia because he knew that I wanted to. I wanted to move to the next step in my life. Mm. And my whole life, I, basically, there's moments in your life where everything changes, and that was one of those moments where, like, literally, my father died. I had to move, and then I literally had to move across the country, uh, and it was a, a huge change. And I was so excited. And it was so beautiful to go to Columbia. And I got there, and the other thing is they had told me, they're like, I said to them, I said to them in the audition, I'm like, by the way, just so you know, I don't have a BA, a B, any fucking thing, like, I don't have any credits of any, like, I, I literally, I was only at DePaul for four months, and they're like, oh, no problem, no problem, we have a certificate program, I'm like, oh, great, great, there's a certificate program, great, great, so like, yeah, you just won't graduate in the same way, I'm like, that's totally fine. Don't even worry about it. And then during my first year, you know, you're with these people all day long. And you're doing all the same things. And you go, you know what? I don't want a fucking certificate program. I want my MFA. God right. damn it, I earned my MFA. And I'm paying for an MFA, so I better get my MFA. Um, and I went to the, the, the head of our program at the time. And I said, and it was like, I'd say we're in like... March or April at this point, and I go, you know, it must have been March because it took a couple months for me to figure it out. Um, I said, look, you know, I know you guys accepted me. I know there's a certificate program, but I really want to graduate with my class. I think it's really important for me to get an MFA like the rest of my class. What do I need to do to get my MFA? And <laughs> he said to me, he goes, we don't have a certificate program. <laughs> And I said, what? He goes, yeah, we, we, we don't, I don't know who told you that. We, we don't actually have a certificate program. I don't really know what to do with you because oh. you shouldn't be here. You're like, and I'm like, well, I'm here. And so they had to go and they had to find out. And what they ended up doing was they ended up matriculating me. So what matriculation means is that they jumped over the BFA, that by school rules, and I guess by all school rules, I had lived a life enough to that qualify I to qualify for, a for, a, for, a, for an MFA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was great. I so mean, then, you totally did. Right. You, yeah. You, you lived a, a lot. <laughs> I, I did do a lot of crazy stuff. Um, but so, yeah, so I don't have... I just have a certain amount of student loans in front of me. I don't have two certain types of student right. loans ahead of me. Um, so it's good. Um, so, so that, by the way, answers your first question of yes. my school issues. Yeah. yeah. So that actually, I think, brings us to the idea that we've sort of been toying for this podcast. We have been toying with an idea for this podcast, which is the idea of jealousy. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know if you've done the artist's way. I'm not a huge artist's way junkie, but I've done like I've done like half of it. So really, mm -hmm. I don't even qualify. So I'm just a heroin junkie. Not exactly. A... So much easier than the artist's way. Um, but one of the things that, like for example, the artist's way talks about is she says that jealousy is actually a wonderful thing. Jealousy tells you, oh, I want to do that. You know, you see someone doing something mm -hmm. and 
It's actually just a, it's this little compass inside you that should motivate you to do the things you want to do without shitting on other people, basically. And, and not trying to run their race, but when you see someone doing something that you like or that, or that you love and you're suddenly jealous, that's what it is. They're doing something that you like and love. Um, I think that's a very positive spin on jealousy. I, I tend to get just like fucking jealous sometimes and it's clearly mm-hmm. malicious and self-destructive. Mm-hmm. What, what, is, what is your attitude with jealousy? Do you try to diminish it? Do you encourage it? How does it present itself in your life? Well, jealousy, by the way, happens. And if to deny that it happens is mm-hmm. kind of foolish because it's a part of the whole process. So first like and that. foremost, we live in New York. By the way, just in, case, just in case you guys didn't know, we live in New York. L.A. has a very different way that they deal with the system. And I was actually talking to someone about this. Actually, was literally talking to someone about this right before I came in here. About how in L.A. what they do is like, you always know who's going in for the same part you're going in for. No matter what, you always like, you can pretty much walk into a room and be like, oh, that motherfucker is going for my part. Oh, that motherfucker is going for my part. Especially on a character type, you always know like, Oh, hey, it's you and me. Right. Best of luck. Hope you get it. And in L.A., what they do is they walk in and they glare at each other. And they kind of, they, it's known, like, don't talk to me because you're going to get the job. I, I want the job. You're not going to get the job. I want the job. So go wow. fuck yourself. And I feel in New York, I feel like the, the way I've kind of dealt with jealousy, I've dealt with it on both sides because I, you know, I know people, like, again, when you know your type, you know who goes in for the stuff, and you know who goes who doesn't go in for your stuff. And so, like, I have like coffee on a regular basis with a friend of mine who literally we always go in for the same things, and sometimes I get it, and sometimes he gets it. And honestly, with me and him, I'm like, it's good. It's a fair thing. Like, it's a good fair balance. And I have gotten some really great stuff, and I know that he's been up for some of the really great stuff that I've been up for. And it's a great friendship we have. But we also know that, like, there's, like, there's a level of, like, that it's, like, it's going to be one of us or it's going to be these other people. Because the other thing is, as it goes on, you meet more and more people. And I had this very weird thing where recently I was up for this pilot that I really wanted mm-hmm. that I didn't get. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted this fucking pilot. And I, had a, I got a call from a friend of mine who said that a friend of mine was going to be in town testing for this pilot Hmm. and I was extremely jealous extremely jealous because so to clarify this was a friend of yours yes that ended up being the person testing for the pilot that had the role you wanted exactly and so what ended up happening is that when they came out test for the pilot I was very positive and I tried to help them as much as I could because in the end all be all, I'm happy that they got their shot at the plate. Mm-hmm. We all deserve a shot at the plate, and when it happens, that's a, that's great. Mm-hmm. And all you can be is as positive to that person when they're getting their shot. Because guess what? When you're getting your shot at the plate, you want, you to want someone to be positive back to you. Yeah. You never and jealousy. You can do it all at home. It's like a fun board game that you're like, <laughs> I play jealousy. Like, it's playing like on your phone. Like, oh, I play jealousy all day. Right. But then once you see people, that shit's got to go away. Right. So jealousy is something you have to do at home. Be as fucking jealous of someone as you want and be like, I fucking wanted that thing. Right. Oh, my God. Right. I wanted right. that right. thing. Right. 
But then when you get in the room with someone, be as positive as you can. Mm -hmm. Because jealousy with friends solves nothing. Mm -hmm. It actually just creates tension. It makes the situation worse. This just made me remember... Um, okay, so I read Chani Nicholas. Uh, she does astrology. Uh, her oh, website's wow. really, really great. Um, and I, I go on, especially when I'm like really struggling. And my horoscope for this week told me to give what I feel like I lack. And I did not really understand that. But I really like what you... I think that it works with what you were just saying. It relates to jealousy because what you feel like you lack is what you're jealous of. Yeah. But right. if you realize you have that too and mm -hmm. you actually have it to give and if you give it, you might actually get it get it back. Exactly. And I've been, I've been very lucky. Like, I've been at the plate a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, I, it's not like I, you know... That's a question I want to ask you which is... Because David booked for everyone just know David is, uh, was on the first two seasons of the Nick in a very prominent role and like when the, when the pilot was coming out he, like his poster was everywhere and it was like so wonderful to see your face all mm -hmm. over New York but I imagine you probably I mean some shit got thrown at you too no like was there jealousy coming at you at all did you feel that or did you feel like people did their jealousy mm -hmm. at home and came to you with open, you know, open minds. Well, I still have coffee with a friend of mine who was up for that part. Wow. And actually, it was even, you know, what was actually worse was with Birdman. Because mm -hmm. Birdman, which, again, I have to just say, Birdman, my part, though is a speaking part, it looks like I'm an extra. It's a very small <laughs> part. I auditioned for that part, by the way, eight times. Wow. I auditioned more for that part in Birdman than I've auditioned for, because we had to test me with a different lot of women, a lot of different children. I went. I had a rehearsal with um, Alejandro and Ed Norton and Michael Keaton on set. Like This truly, so, he is not exaggerating. It is a tiny part. I saw Birdman, and I did not see David in Yeah, it. I'm yeah. trying to remember. I, I watched <laughs> Birdman, too, and I'm like, God, I and feel like such an asshole. I don't times. remember. Yeah, I had to audition eight times. And, wow. And uh, what happened was that because they weren't really sure what they were doing with that part at one point, they pretty much saw every character actor in New York uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of, like, there was three parts that they saw every character actor in New York. One of those parts got completely cut out of the movie, <laughs> and I met that guy, and he was on set, and he was in, like, and, like, oh, I, no. I was like, I can't wait to see this part when they shoot it, oh, and it totally no. got cut. Um, and actually, all the parts that I went in for, except for the part that I actually ended up in, mm -hmm. all got cut. Isn't that funny? But because there was, because my part was on the cusp of being an extra, which it kind of, like, it's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, some guy, some old, like, Polish guy came up me and he was like I was up for your part and I was like oh I'm so sorry he's like I didn't get it that's fine and I'm like oh not the way you're saying it doesn't sound like it's fine he's it like why you think like that you're so great it. and I'm like I didn't think I was that great um I have, a, I have a question before any of this success and this being able to be you know at the, at the base a lot you know um or up to bat, sorry. <laughs> up to base. Up to base, up to bat. All the Whatever. time at the base. Um, <laughs> uh, were there times when you felt like you were, you were more like the Polish guy or like the were feeling jealous? Uh, oh, I've been the underdog my whole career. And you guys don't understand because I was always the bitch. Like I was always the one that was like, oh, we're not going to take you. We're going to take this handsome person. Or, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to take this person with training or this thing. I mean, the whole reason why, and one of the reasons why I went to school was that I was understudying all these shows. And I was like, I, the only difference between me and these people is that these people have training. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that that's what the whole purpose of training is, is to move to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, no, I, I and, 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 and I, trust me, like I'm, I'm an, I, I'm a character actor. Mm-hmm. And I have been I I have been the underdog as a character actor for years. Mm-hmm. Every theater company they're like, oh yeah, you'd be great to do this nothing part, mm-hmm. or oh yeah, no, we're not going to use you. We're going to use this person. Mm-hmm. And I've lived as like you know this kind of small dreamer that wanted this thing, and I've been the small dreamer who wanted the big thing for years. Mm-hmm. And in the Bay Area, like I mean, the Bay Area is a small pool. Mm-hmm. Right. And I couldn't get auditions for the smallest things. In fact, I still can't. Um, you and know, that reminds me of, I, I was reading this thing with one of the girls that I work with when I tutor, and in the text it said, it was a text by Giordano Bruno, who was like a Renaissance thinker, and but, I mean, Renaissance thinker is loose. He thought he was a magician and he was burned at the stake. Um, <laughs> but he said, no one can be a prophet in their own hometown. Because mm-hmm. in your hometown, people just think you're... Whatever. We we go away, we grow up, we grow into ourselves, we, we grow into, you know, larger versions of ourselves, you know, and then... And then we want that approval. We do. I think we want that approval. Well, because we left, yeah. because, yeah, because we didn't feel home. that approval in the first place. It's why we left. I mean, it's why I left. I left so I could come back. Yeah. And that always happens. I really think that always happens with that kind of need for approval that whenever you start seeking it out it bites you in the ass yeah, yeah. like when you start yeah, you, can't you want someone you can't look for it yeah. especially when you see I'm, I'm so you get too big for your bridges you start to think well everyone should be flocking to me and that's exactly when the random person from your like local mm-hmm. city is like well could you be a local hire it's like well the whole point of this interaction was that I wanted to feel important yeah you yeah. know I wanted to feel special <laughs> yeah right right I think there's a reason why we, we just went to this, uh-huh. what we just got to. And I think it's because at one point in those towns, we were jealous of other people's approval. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it back to yeah. that. Yeah, no. Um, and the show that I wanted, that I, I and it was in the Bay Area, that was like local hire, I was like, uh, no, fuck that. Because I want them to actually want me and treat me as the artist that I am not treat me as the artist that they can afford um and so yeah but when you said father issue it's funny because I think the other thing at least for me about wanting to be hired in my hometown and wanting to work there is that it means that my parents are going to see me on this the stages that they think Mm-hmm. are important that we grew up with and the fact that I my for me it's an even bigger issue because I'm from LA so like I have to go to the Pantages or the Amundsen oh, so it's pretty hard to you know and I had my first audition mm-hmm. for the Amundsen and I went in and I was sure that I was going to get this mm-hmm. I felt like I was perfect for the part and of course like when you come in that hungry uh-huh. and when you come in with that many family issues on your sleeve People you can know. smell that, oh, yeah. you know? They mm-hmm. can smell that you wanted to go back and fucking show them, you know? Yeah. And nobody wants... I wouldn't want that in mm-hmm. my room. It's hard. It's just balance. It's hard. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, um, I mean, I'll tell you the one of the things that I'm most proud of was that... And this is such a small part, but I played Snug in Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually one of my... It's, it's literally, a great part. Snug great part. is one of my favorite parts. Yeah. Um, so I, went in, I, was, I was playing Snug, and it was actually the last thing my father got to see me do. And um, I was so proud of it, because Shakespeare is like this, you know, this really beautiful heightened language that's 
not like the language of the common man. But there is like a, there's an educational thing about Shakespeare when you perform yes. Shakespeare that like goes like, oh, this is, this is a higher cultivation than the other stuff. Um, I love that you played Snug the Joiner. And my father got to see it. And it was the last thing he got to see me do. And I was so proud that that was the last thing he got to see me do because it was continuing to show the journey of the step ups. And... Step ups. Yes. Step I, ups. Like that. I like that. So, David, do you do Christmas? Do you do Hanukkah? Do you do Kwanzaa? Mm -hmm. Do you do, I don't know, uh, a, like a pagan Festivus. worship of... Right. So I celebrate Christmas. But also, here's the other thing is... Because I'm a single man in my now 40s, Jesus Christ. Mazel um, Thank you. Uh, there is no holiday. There I is can't no wait until I'm Holidays, though, anymore. Mm. But I always love a good holiday song. But wait, wait what, did you grow up with any Christmas carols? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what are your favorites? Oh, let's see. Uh, I always love Rudolph. Oh. I always love Frosty. Uh, oh, so you're oh, like, you like, like a cheerful. <laughs> I love that you, you identify as a character actor, and then the Christmas carols that you like, like are about Frosty and Rudolph. <laughs> What's the one that like, was like, um, Okay, so Rudolph and Frosty. Uh, maybe, maybe you and I will sing some Rudolph and Frosty at a later sesh and tack it on. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose, and if you ever David, you can look forward to a Christmas carol of your choosing, yeah. which you already chose, that we will sing for you, and maybe mm -hmm. we will also sing um, one of the more traditional carols. <laughs> uh, well